Welcome to Hub and Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub and Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Jamison Coughlin, editor of LNG Insight, which provides subscribers with North American LNG news and pricing, plus key European and Asian fundamentals. Today, I'm joined by Alex Munton, director of Rapid & Energy Group's Global Gas Service. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Jamison. Great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, Absolutely. So, okay, today we're going to talk about, I guess, a policy shift of sorts. I mean, if you can even really call it that at all, by the U.S. Department of Energy on LNG exports. So here's my disclaimer. Listen carefully because this is a little bit complex. I'll try to lay this out here for us before Alex and I get into things. Back in April, the DOE reaffirmed its expectations that U.S. LNG projects should be able to start exporting the fuel within seven years of receiving authorization to export to non-free trade agreement countries. This would, of course, apply to Mexican LNG projects using U.S. feed gas, too. DOE also said that it would not consider applications for extending the seven-year deadline unless a project has both started construction and can demonstrate that circumstances out of its control are to blame for delays. So in that time, DOE has denied an export extension for the Lake Charles LNG project proposed for Louisiana, along with an appeal of that decision. So this has possibly set the stage for a court battle between DOE and the Lake Charles project, which is, by the way, led by Energy Transfer. So it's kind of become the elephant in the room for other projects nearing this seven-year time frame that haven't advanced yet. And the policy statement, you know, could really have significant impacts. So this brings us to Alex, who has spent a lot of time thinking about this. He's helped NGI with some reporting on it. Him and Rapidin were among the first to do a deep dive on the repercussions of this policy stance. So I'm anxious to start unpacking this with you a bit. But first, Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about Rapidin Energy Group, your role there, and maybe some about your background. Yeah, thanks, Jameson. Well, Rapidin Energy is a, uh, a research, energy-focused research organization. We have a small but very experienced team. We're based in Washington, D.C. and Houston and uh, one or two other parts of the U.S. And we're very focused on the nexus between market fundamentals, energy policy and global geopolitics. That has been the mission statement of the firm since it was started by uh, Bob McNally, former uh, advisor to uh, President George Bush, started the firm uh, about a decade ago. And that's been its purpose. And, and, and really, those sort of three dimensions of market dynamics, policy, and geopolitics have, have really come into sharp focus in uh, the last couple of years. So we've been, we've been very busy and very focused on the areas that we specialize in. Yeah, that's, that's an understatement. It has been a very busy time uh, in energy indeed. 
Just in terms of my specific role, Jameson, so uh, I have around 15 years experience in the uh, energy analytics space. I've covered various parts of, of the world, a long stint covering Middle East upstream oil and gas, spent quite a bit of time in region. But for the last seven, eight years, I've been based in Houston. I'm from the UK originally, but now we're coming up to, uh, yeah, close to a decade in Houston. And for most of that period, very focused on uh, North America LNG. And so I've been, you know, with this story around government, US government policy, as it relates to the approval of LNG exports, right from the beginning, and I've seen it and covered it, from the very start of its evolution, when uh, the whole topic of US LNG was, was just getting going, which is a little bit more than a decade ago, when those first export projects were proposed. Okay, okay, perfect. That's a good point to kind of step back here, <clears throat> set the stage for a Q&A and talk about the big picture about how this policy stance, you know, impacts the U.S. LNG landscape before we maybe get into Lake Charles and some other projects more specifically. So I think it's important to note that you need a non-FTA export license in the United States to be in the LNG business. It's vital. The U.S. has free trade agreements with something like 20 countries, many of which don't rely on LNG. So, you know, you need to be authorized for exports to the rest of the world. The DOE's stance and its decision to deny an export extension has appeared to more or less stop the Lake Charles project in its path. And there was some news out from Lake Charles late last night that we'll get into a little bit later. But Alex, here's where I'm going to turn to you. Shortly after that decision at the DOE to deny this export extension, Rapidan concluded that something like a dozen LNG projects uh, in the U.S. and Mexico aren't likely to move ahead as a result. I mean, why is that? Can you walk us through how this is likely to impact these other projects out there? Yeah, it's a big deal, for sure. You've mentioned in your introductory remarks, Jameson, that there were essentially two two things that happened on the same day, on April 21st of this year. And one was the denial of Lake Charles's request to extend its commencement deadline. And the second was a new policy statement that sets the rules by which future decisions or future applications will be judged, applications for extensions. So this is all about the decision as to whether an LNG project, which has been granted a non-FTA permit, and within each of those non-FTA permits, they're all the same. They all have a seven-year deadline by which the LNG project needs to have started production. Otherwise, the permit expires. So this is the key. And you, you mentioned it yourself. The ability to export to non-FTA countries, markets, LNG markets, is absolutely fundamental to the commercial viability of any US LNG project, any US LNG project of scale. Because as you said, there are a few markets around the world that have free trade agreements with the United States. But if you're a large scale project, and you do not have access 
to most of the world's LNG importing countries, then the project is a non-starter. It's not commercially viable. So this is the predicament that Lake Charles faces. And by extension, all the other permitted projects that were on the DOE's docket that are now automatically faced with the new rule, which is that the seven-year deadline is firm, unless, as you said, the project can meet specific criteria. And this is that you know, the project is under construction and can demonstrate extenuating circumstances which justify a further extension of time. So just to uh, wrap up on, on this first point, and I'll pause, I'll let you come back in. Let's see where we are. Lake Charles currently has a deadline of December 2025, you know, a little over two years. So it's not feasible to build a large-scale project and start production within that time frame. It, it can't do it. And it, it doesn't have an extension. So as things stand, it doesn't have a means to move forward. And we can talk about the agreements that were signed yesterday, but that's, that's where things stand. But then as we turn to the dozen or so projects that are now going to be considered within the context of the April 21st policy statement, we, we just asked ourselves the, the basic question, can any of those projects meet the deadline that they currently have, i.e., how many of them will at some point need to file a request? And the answer is this, they all will, every single one of them in our view including Rio Grande LNG, which was the big news yesterday that announced FID on a $18 billion phase one development. So, you know, extremely interesting times and lots of uh, strategic decision making that is going into these decisions. And that's why we are now entering uh, an incredibly fascinating time for the industry. Okay. Okay. So in other words, the the current non-FTA authorizations that these dozen projects have, most of them would have to be contracted you know, financed and exporting within something like three or four years, unless they get an extension, right? Well, the projects that are permitted and have deadlines, those deadlines fall due in each of them seven years from when the permit was granted, but they were granted at all different times. So some of those seven-year deadlines are falling due within the next few months, and these are projects that are pre-FID. They have not started construction. They have not started construction. So, you know, if you have a, a start date deadline that's within a, you know, a few months or a year, clearly it's not possible to meet that. And then as we go through the list, we get to projects like Rio Grande LNG, whose deadline is early 2027. So you look at that and you think, well, you know, theoretically, if all goes well, the project may be able to start production within that deadline, but it's cutting it very fine. And there are reasons for why we think that on balance, you know, three and a half years is unlikely to be sufficient time for the project to have started production. But nonetheless, to your question, these are all, with the exception of Rio Grande LNG, which announced FID, these are all projects that 
have yet to start construction. They're still in the marketing phase. They haven't secured financing. They may not have yet secured an EPC contractor. So lots to do before they even start construction. And that seven-year deadline, you know, for a lot of them is right up against the line. You know, it's coming very, it's looming. And, you know, I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but the DOE, I think, has always sort of had this seven-year deadline kind of baked into its its export authorizations. Have they now doubled down on this a little bit more? Is that what's happened here with this policy statement? Well, this is exactly it. And, I mean, it has been articulated fully by the DOE in response to, well, with respect to the, the, the Lake Charles denial, i.e. Its, its reasoning for, for the denial in its follow-up when uh, Energy Transfer requested a, a rehearing, which was, which was denied. These are the, the, the sort of formal steps that happen in terms of potential future litigation. But yeah, I mean, the decision has been fully articulated, which is that, you know, from the DOE standpoint, it cannot simply keep adding and adding to the stock of already permitted projects without knowing which are actually going to move forward and which are not. Because at the end of the day, and this is really the key point, that the United States has been wrestling with the question around what is an acceptable level of exports from the US market, i.e., at what point is the benefits of developing an export industry outweighed by the impacts or vice versa? At which point are the negative aspects of exporting outweighed by the benefits? Because at some point, the more and more you export, the more gas is going out of the country, and the more pressure there is on the government to say, look, you know, this is going to have an impact on domestic prices. Prices are going to rise in the US the more and more capacity is built to export gas to the rest of the world. It was very straightforward in that sense. And so the policy has always been that the US government will act to determine what is in the public interest. And part of that assessment is the impact on the domestic economy and prices for domestic consumers and industry. So this is the issue that they've been wrestling with. And, you know, a very core part of the thinking is that cumulative exports are material to what the DOE considers to be in the public interest, the public interest determination. So, you know, there has never been this idea that there is unfettered access to the international market. At what point on a cumulative basis is the limit that the exports of LNG from the U.S. should be should be set at? So in the uh, yeah, explanation and the reasoning given by the DOE, they used a very interesting phrase which was this concept of authorization overhang, which means, yeah, there's been a lot of permitted projects which have proceeded to construction and are now on stream, but there's even more that has been permitted that has been sitting there for a long time. 
So, you know, when you stack it all up, there's around 50 BCF a day uh, of authorized non-FTA exports, a little under half of which is either on stream or now under construction. But from the DOE standpoint, what they were saying is, you know, we're not over yet. We still have a large number of pending applications. And so this issue of, you know, looking at it through a cumulative lens and the concept of authorization overhang are absolutely critical. And that's what really, you know, everything boils down into this firm seven-year deadline and uh, strengthened criteria for uh, awarding an extension, that there isn't just some limitless right to extend and extend and extend. At some point, the DOE will say no. Right, right. And this is this is definitely more relevant now, as you sort of mentioned, because, I mean, even if you just add up the existing projects that are exporting right now, the projects that are under construction, it, through the end of the decade, you're bringing online like 23 billion cubic feet a day of exports, you know, not to mention all the pending stuff. So from the policymakers perspective, I, I definitely get that it's a little bit more urgent right now, maybe to consider the cumulative impacts. So with that said, you had mentioned litigation too. You know, energy transfers told me that, you know, they're going to, they're going to continue to develop this project, maybe even using the existing DOE export authorization, never mind the problems that might arise with that. But that means that Lake Charles would have to be exporting by the deadline in 2025, which, you know, as we've talked about, would be extremely difficult, pretty much impossible. So I guess they really only have two options right now. They can challenge the DOE's decision in court, or they can reapply altogether for a non-FTA export license. So Rapidan believes Lake Charles has slim chances of prevailing in court against the DOE. Why is that, Alex? It's for a few different reasons. I think the main one, Jameson, is that the law gives the power to the DOE at its own discretion as to whether to grant an extension or not. And, you know, when it comes down to the discretionary powers of a federal agency, this is an area that courts are least likely to overrule in and of itself. If we cannot see an argument whereby the DOE doesn't have discretionary powers, and we, we can't see one because the Natural Gas Act is is pretty clear, and, and the DOE made this point, argued this point in its denial argument, that it, it has this power. And so fundamentally, we don't really see an avenue by which any court would be able to overturn that, overrule it. They would be overruling agency power, and, and we just don't see that happening. So then you fall back onto the, the secondary aspect of, of Lake Charles's argument, which is that DOE said they hadn't demonstrated sufficiently, they hadn't sufficiently demonstrated good cause. That's the expression in terms of moving forward with the project. So now this is an area that isn't clear cut. And so while we, we think energy transfers will struggle to get a positive decision or a, a decision in its favor. Nonetheless, there's a chance. If there is a chance, then it will fall down to this, which is that, you know, Lake Charles has said, look, we've been trying to move forward. 
we ran into you know various issues but we've been making progress we've been signing counterparty agreements you know offtake and sale and purchase agreements and we've been moving forward with the project so doe argued against that and said look we've already given you lots and lots of time uh, you had a a first extension and you've come back for a second extension and you haven't really demonstrated much progress. And when they argued that, it was quite interesting because they pointed to the decision at Port Arthur, because this decision was made at the same time. At the point when DOE denied Lake Charles on its second extension request, DOE approved Port Arthur on its first extension request. The DOE said, look, the difference was Port Arthur not only had a signed EPC contract, i.e. somebody to physically start building the project right away, but they had also announced FID. So they had, you know, sanctioned the project. It was moving forward. And they made that comparison with Lake Charles, which is, you know, none of those two things have happened yet at Lake Charles. And it's unclear and no clearer yet as to when that could happen in the future. And would it be impractical for Lake Charles to resubmit a non-FTA application, or are they unlikely to do that? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, this is the only alternative path that Lake Charles has, and it's by no means impossible because the DOE said themselves that the denial of its non-FTA extension request was without prejudice to a future application. So it's entirely feasible for energy transfer to submit a new application. The only problem with that, the big problem, it's not a small problem, is you know how long will it take? And I think this is not just an issue for energy transfer, but it's 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 becoming an issue for for everyone. And it relates to this problem that I was describing earlier, which is you know the the basic issue that DOE and the US government has, which is just how much is too much in terms of US LNG exports. And so the approvals of new non-FTA authorizations has become very slow. Right now, we're watching for the next one, which should be the authorization for Commonwealth LNG. And this is really an important one to watch because so far since the Biden administration came into office, they have not authorized a single new non-FTA permit. And the procedure has been since the beginning that once a project has successfully moved through the FERC process, i.e. been granted its authorization by the commission to construct the facility, which is you know, in and of itself quite a significant undertaking, both in time and cost. Once that has been completed, then DOE will issue the non-FTA permit. Well, where are we in that with Commonwealth LNG? Here's where we are. Commonwealth LNG received its FERC authorization in November last year. So under normal circumstances, we would have expected the non-FTA to have been granted within about three months post the FERC order. Well, we're now in month eight and counting. If it's taking this long for a project that you know is first on the docket, first in the queue, how much longer will it take for a project such as 
you know, Lake Charles putting in a, a brand new application, there's every likelihood that it will be much further back in the queue and could be facing a period of years if decisions that should be uh, slightly more of a formality in and of themselves are taking nine plus months. So yeah, it's all beginning to move very slowly. Right. And I and I, I'm glad you brought out Commonwealth LNG because I think this has, you know, we've talked about this before, some people thinking about how the Biden administration is going to handle that. But it, it should also be mentioned too that Lake Charles announced three tentative agreements or, or HOAs late last night to supply 3.6 million tons of LNG, I think I think it was. So they're clearly working to move the, the project ahead regardless of this clash with the DOE. And I guess along those lines, I, I suppose, you know, thinking longer term that there's a chance that you could get a change of administration in 2024, or when that happens after the next term, the, the DOE might not stand by this policy so firmly. I don't really know how much that even matters at a certain point for, for some of these projects you know, if they're not off the ground this decade and the competitive disadvantage that, that would create. But, but my point here is, Alex, if, if energy transfer takes this to court, do you foresee some sort of precedent for future challenges to, to DOE export extensions or, or even authorizations? Well, if it goes to court, the outcome will, will have an impact. I mean, all of these things establish precedent in, in some way. I mean, the DOE's denial of Lake Charles in and of itself established a precedent with respect to second extension requests. And they, and they use that language. The DOE said this would be unprecedented if they were to grant a second extension request. So if this eventually goes to the courts, it would be heard in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, then yeah, I mean, the decision that comes out of that would establish precedent. But, you know, as I said, I mean, it would be, it would be very interesting to see how things unfold. I've mentioned sort of where we think there are really very little grounds for the court to rule in, in energy transfers favor, and maybe some other areas where they have a, a slightly stronger case. So it would start to get very complex. But you can also see why a precedent, you mean the court would be mindful of the precedent it was laying down. I mean, just for example, Jameson, I, I'll give you one example. Energy Transfer said in its argument for a, a rehearing, they said, look, we received an extension from FERC. You know, FERC also sets deadlines as to how long the the permit is valid for the plant to be built and for construction to be completed. There is a deadline binding on the developer. And so if the developer can't, you know, doesn't think it can meet that deadline, then it can request an extension from FERC. And that's been happening in many, many cases. And so far, to a, a very large extent, FERC has been okay with that. They've been granting those extensions. So Lake Charles's argument was the DOE cannot deny an extension if FERC has already granted one. Now, that's very interesting because this raises the whole question of the powers of the DOE. But imagine if in that instance, it went to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal, you know, just theoretically, hypothetically agreed with that. Well, it would render the you know whole framework 
of permitting, it would it would it would have changed it because it would have effectively said, look, you know, FERC basically decides what will happen. If FERC grants an extension, then automatically the DOE has to as well. So, you know, the sort of discretionary powers of the DOE would be fundamentally altered. And I, I you know, I just think that's why it's it's very, very difficult to see a precedent being set which will be contrary to the agency's discretionary powers in in this instance. Okay, so very very clearly a lot to keep an eye on here in terms of what uh, energy transfer does next. So I've got one last question for you, Alex. As you said, this policy stance could, could jeopardize some other projects out there, but there are a couple that are that are pretty close to advancing. As you mentioned, next decade sanctioned Rio Grande yesterday. Delphin, I guess, also kind of looks pretty close to FID for its project offshore Louisiana. Pretty simple. I mean, is Rio Grande going to be okay now that they've issued a notice to proceed? Will Delphin be okay if they can get this thing across the finish line and and, and start construction sooner? How does this policy impact those projects? Yeah, when we began to think through this, we started to sort of work our way back through the steps. And, you know, the starting point in thinking through the answer to that question is really the starting point in our conversation, Jameson, which is no non-FTA, no project, i.e. you don't have a valid non-FTA permit, you really can't move forward. And by virtue of the deadlines, let's just focus on Rio Grande LNG, you know, has a deadline of February 2027. Clearly, well, in our view, there's a lot of uncertainty, even though it's now, you know, started construction as to whether it can meet that deadline. Now, as the project was over the last few months seeking to piece everything together, both from a marketing standpoint and a financing standpoint, our question was was this. If the project, if that project or if any project doesn't have certainty of non-FTA authorization, how likely is it that they will be able to raise the financing that is needed to move forward? And our view was that it's it's going to make it harder. And we thought that the, the whole question of project financing was getting more complex and more difficult anyway. And this would be another layer of difficulty, which which just might be fundamentally too difficult to overcome. So we said, and that's why, you know, we looked at the whole list of projects and we said, look, you know, it's looking very dicey for these projects. But the interesting thing here is if you flip that question around and you say, what if? You say, what if we went ahead with this project, even in the face of this uncertain deadline, if we just decided we're going to do it, the banks decided you know they're going to put in the money, the investors decided they're going to put it in, the, and it, it moves forward. How likely is it that the DOE wouldn't grant an extension as that deadline begins to loom? I.e., if a project is already well under construction, you know the balance of power shifts in some ways because. It's a lot harder. I mean, you're effectively making a strategic commitment. It's like two cars driving along a single piece of road, a single lane. You know, one has to give way. And if you see one of the the cars that is not giving way, 
if it basically takes off its steering wheel and throws it out the window, it's like, well, it's happening. The project is already happening. So it's sort of politically impossible to not grant it an extension. So this is the strategic bet that that has just occurred at Rio Grande. The strategic bet being, if we just do it, it's very unlikely that the DOE will stand in the way of any extension that, that we may need. And we're on board with that logic. We agree with it. We think it's now very unlikely, once the project is you know, 60, 70, 80% built, that the extension wouldn't be granted. But the interesting thing is that it's not 100%. And I think you know, we're in a, a regulatory moment now within the US where that metaphor that I described, the two cars on a, on a single lane road, is, is the sort of collision course we're in. You know, you have two very strong forces opposing each other. And this is the pro-climate, anti-fossil fuel, anti-LNG part of the political picture against, you know, the pro-industry and pro-export and, and the whole development community and the international market as well, which is saying we need this LNG. So that's where we stand. And we don't know how the outcomes are going to be, but but that's where we are. And so I think while we we, we think that there, should, there shouldn't be a problem for an individual project which moves forward, we first of all think that the dates are very important. You know, you mentioned Delphin. Delphin's deadline is June 24. Rio Grande is February 2027. So they're very different. But nonetheless, we'll be, we'll be interested to see what happens and whether, you know, Rio Grande is the exception that proves the rule or it opens the door for a lot more investment in FIDs. Yeah, that that certainly um, leaves us something to think about for sure. Um, And I think that that's a good place to stop. Thanks again for joining us, Alex. Uh, We really appreciated having you. You bet. It's been great to talk with you, Jameson. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to all of you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or midweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.